Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange, stories by leaders for leaders to help you to raise the bar on your own performance and to release the potential inside of you. Now, here's today's episode. Greetings, everyone. Welcome back to the Nonprofit Exchange. I'm Hugh Ballou, founder and president of Center Vision Leadership Foundation. We have a very good topic today. Um, it's about how we work together with other organizations. It might be other nonprofits, but there might be some other options out there. So my guest today um, is coming in from Northwestern in, in uh, probably colder where it is down here in the South, but Michelle Shoemate, welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange. Tell people a little bit about you and why are you doing this important work? Well, it's great to be here. And yes, it is colder in Chicago. Um, this morning when I walked my kids to school, it was five degrees. So I, I'm sure you have better weather than I do. Um, you know, just a little about me. I grew up as a kid, a pastor's kid, faith leader's kid. So I was somebody who always from early on was just ingrained in me that life of service is what's expected. It's what's meaningful. Um, so fast forward, and I was in a graduate program, and I thought I was going to be doing knowledge management work, but of course, you know, being my parent's child, I was volunteering, and I was particularly volunteering, in, I was in Hollywood, California at the time, I was volunteering among uh, organizations who were helping individuals experiencing homelessness, and I came to a just like an aha moment, which was you know, the knowledge management issues I was studying in big corporations, nonprofits, and in fact, local churches also have, but it's not that they were losing information inside their organization. They were reinventing each other the same, um, they were reinventing the wheel because other organizations down the street had solved these problems. And wouldn't it be amazing if we could get organizations together to share best practices, to share information, to work together, wouldn't that be so much more powerful? And so that idea launched into my graduate work and my consulting work, and I've been doing this ever since. So that was back in 2003 when I graduated. Um, and it's been a, oh, an interesting journey, but it's been one that's been very rewarding because I've gotten to meet some amazing social impact leaders. Social impact, it's, um, people throw it around, but it's a, it's a really important topic. Um, I'm coming in from Lynchburg, Virginia, where it's 54 today and sunny. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't envy your cold weather. So your book, which is on the shelf behind you, uh, tell mm -hmm. us about your book. Uh, it's the title of what we're doing today, isn't it? Yeah, Networks for Social Impact. Which, so we've got two kind of loaded terms in there, right? So one of them is network. And what we mean by a network is a group of three or more organizations who are working together to achieve something bigger than they could alone, right? So anytime they're talking about a coalition, a collaboration, an alliance, all that's a network for us. And then social impact. And social impact means that we're not just doing good, but that we are actually producing concrete benefits for communities that extend beyond what an individual organization could do alone. And so networks for social impact brings those things together. How do we collaborate? How do we bring organizations together so that we're seeing concrete benefits for, for our communities that we serve? 
that we're seeing better educational outcomes. We're seeing reductions in poverty. We're seeing um, people being able to be served in such a way that it reduces some of the burdens in their life. That's really the topic of the book. So I find that there's very little collaboration going on in the communities where I've lived and mostly in the South. And I don't know if it's intentional or if it's that people don't understand it, but they've never been given the opportunity to realize how powerful it can be. Now, I'm thinking about the peer-to-peer, the nonprofit, nonprofit, but generic nonprofits could work with religious organizations, educational, business, um, government. I mean, we could work with a lot of different entities. So but talk about networks and how is it different, a network different from a social impact organization? Yeah, so the thing that makes networks different than necessarily just an organization is that you've got multiple groups in them who each maintain their autonomy, right? So I think some of the fear that sometimes, particularly faith-based nonprofits that I've worked with over the years experience is that they go in and they think I'm going to collaborate. I have to give over everything, right? Like all my decisions are going to be impacted. I'm, I'm going to have to share all my donors. Everything's going to have to be impacted. And the truth is no, you get to maintain your autonomy, but you're finding spaces where through sharing knowledge, through sharing resources, through aligning our services, you can do more than you could do alone. So that, that's the key. So autonomy is part of it, but you're interdependent, right? You're finding those places, those junctures where you can collaborate. Um, I think I agree with you. I, we did a study probably about five years ago where we looked at religious nonprofits. We did a big national survey of religious nonprofits and they do collaborate less than their secular counterparts, but there isn't any reason why that has to be. You don't have to agree on everything with your secular counterparts in order to collaborate, as long as you can find places where through working together, you can do more good. I think it would, we, we don't really understand the synergy of the collaborative spirit. I guess one good example, and, and you're right, people think we have to give up something when really, you're not really giving up anything. Well, maybe you, you can offload some things that you don't want to be doing because somebody else is already doing it and maybe doing it better than you, but that's not giving up any autonomy because last time I looked, there's plenty of work for all the nonprofits to be doing. Mm -hmm. We don't need to be taking on more stuff. We really, really need to do is streamline our systems. So if you, <clears throat> if you use the analogy you know, if you ask a surgeon if you need surgery, that's going to be yes. So I have an analogy. Everything I see is an orchestra. So as a lifelong conductor, you've got the oboe player and the trumpet player and the French horn player they're all, and the violinist. They're all very different. They have different techniques, different personalities. Um, some play more than others. You know, there's different nuances, but none of them give up their individual skill. So we come together and we use our unique abilities, but we use it in conjunction. We call it ensemble. It's the synergy of uh, the collaboration of people actually listening and playing off of each other. But we haven't given up anything. We've actually created something different, which is more profound. So what analogies do you use that help people understand how powerful collaboration could be? 
I usually lean into the power of story. And, and I think when you hear about the ways that some of these collaborations have come together and what they've achieved, all of a sudden people began to think about that. So as you were talking about ensemble and thinking about religious-based organizations, one of the groups we talk about in the book is Agewell Pittsburgh. Agewell Pittsburgh is a group of or Jewish organizations um, in Pittsburgh, all serving seniors. And one of the things that they realized when they first got together was that they were duplicating some of their services and they didn't need to. And so they sorted it out. They figured out which one was the oboe player to use your orchestra analogy, which one was the, who was gonna play the violin? Like, and they figured that out. But then they said, well, could we have our frontline staff meet and share information and resources once a month so we're learning from one another? so that we can coordinate and say, okay, well, these are the groups I'm helping. They also could use your services to make sure there's warm handoffs, that there, there's this kind of coordinated action. And they've been doing that for several years now. What's the result? The outcomes for their seniors in comparison to the Medicaid average are better. Fewer of them end up in the emergency room. They end up staying in their home much longer than, the, than when we look at seniors nationwide. They end up having uh, a better quality of life. And they can show that against what we see as these national comparisons. Why? Because they figured out who was going to play what instrument, and then they made it an ensemble, to use your analogy. They figured out how to bring those pieces together and coordinate those services by, at the front line for their seniors. Does your book offer some mechanisms for people to think through the system for collaborating, the mechanisms, the accountabilities, any of that stuff? It sure does. And one of the things that we, we talk about is that there's not a one size fits all model. So we talk about different choices you have to make along the way and what are the trade-offs of those choices. So the, the example I just gave was one where you have a group of organizations who are ready to do what we call systems alignment. They're ready to make all of their services work together. So it's like a whole is more than the sum of the parts, right? Like that's what they're after. Other networks are really about advocacy, right? So here where I live as part of my, my local kind of community is a, an interfaith coalition who does advocacy at the local level for affordable housing in the community, right? That's a different kind of collaboration, different setup. And so we talk about each of these different types of collaboration that you could be doing and when what's the right decision. So how do you decide, make, what do you do about decision making? Who needs to be at the table? Do you need technologies to help you? All of those pieces. Um, that's part of the process is figuring out what works for what kind of theory of change or mechanism for making a social impact. I guess there's some people that are afraid to get into something because <clears throat> they feel like I'm going to do all the work and the other mm. people have a free ride. So how do we create expectations? And then how do we create some mechanisms so that we can track the expectations and then check in every now and then to see how we're doing? Yeah, I'm a big fan of when organizations first get together and they form a collaboration, writing down expectations and rules of the road. And the first thing that I ask groups to do is, let's decide how we're gonna make decisions as a group. And that seems very straightforward, but it's not because sometimes you get groups together where you have a very small nonprofit organization and a big hospital system sitting at the same table. Do they get equal votes? I, right, like now you have to have a conversation about that. 
Um, I'm a big advocate of consensus decision making and training people in that, but that's not the only way you can do it. But that's not usually one of the first conversations I have. Second conversation I have is like, who's going to be responsible for this coalition and doing all of the things that make the coalition or the network work? Who's going to call the meetings? Okay, who's going to be a project manager? Who's going to be in charge of communications? And begin to spread that out. Because one of the things we've learned about sustainable collaborations is it can't be one person doing all the work. If it's one person doing all the work all the time, that when they go to a different organization or they decide to retire, the collaboration falls apart, right? So you've got to think early on about how do you distribute some of those different roles so it's not just in seeing one person. And then the last thing I say is that you've got to be really specific upfront about your goals. What are you trying to achieve? And being so specific about those goals that you will know if you're making progress towards them or not. So I, I'm not a fan of those wonderful lofty statements about what we're going to achieve that aren't trackable. Right? Specific, measurable, time-bound goals is a great way to help organizations stay the course together and figure out, are we actually getting somewhere? You're preaching our song. We, um, we do the substantive pieces of planning and implementation. And it's surprising how few organizations, I don't care any kind of organization, even if you ask core values, they can't answer it. If you talk about your long-term objectives and short-term goals, they're really fuzzy. I want more of this. Well, one more? Um, so the specificity is what drives results. It also <clears throat> is part of a collaborative piece. How do we take our our goals and your goals and then how do we see these complement each other's and how do we eliminate the duplication? Because we could really mm -hmm. put together a coalition where it's really, it's easier. One plus one equals 12 instead of three. If we, if we think about, you know, the, your, your idea of some people know how, 10 people know how it should go, but they'll have 11 opinions on it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I've been in those rooms too. <laughs> yeah. And so um, you're talking about the word social impact. I mean, that's one of those words that's been politicized so much that, you know, let's hone in on what, in your context, what is social impact? So I think about it as concrete improvements for communities. So it's not we, it's always good for organizations to figure out how to save money. Back office collaborations are great, like, but that's not what we're talking about here. Um, for us, social impact are things like when I was talking about age well uh, Pittsburgh, do we see better outcomes for seniors for the, when they're served in age well Pittsburgh than we do for seniors nationwide, right? That's a social impact. Or we look at things like in education, are we seeing better literacy scores and math scores and high school graduation rates and post-secondary completion rates as a result of what you're doing in this collaboration. That's a social impact. Um, I work with veteran serving organizations um, around the country. And one of the things that we talk about is, um, are we improving access to services? How quickly from when a veteran makes a request to the service, do they, do they get a call back from an agency who can help them? 
And we've worked with them and over time, they've gotten that down through America Service Networks to 24 hours. They get a response and they get, they're able to get access services. So is it that access? It's those concrete measurable outcomes for people. Um, it's not just about we did something good, but can we show that it makes a difference? Does it actually reduce the burden of the social problem that we're seeing? And how do you quantify those results? Um, so <clears throat> we have government entities <clears throat> and we have community-based cause-based charities. We use the word nonprofit, which is really a dumb word. Um, we're really a tax exempt for purpose business and we generate mm -hmm. proceeds, not profits for the good of the work we're doing and actually pay salaries and improve our systems. Um, so we, there's a lot of things that when we say the word nonprofit, we spin into this scarcity thinking and dysfunction, but we're really in a business, whether we're mm -hmm. church, we're a nonprofit, it's, there's a business strategy, there's a business functionality to it. Now, there are a lot more rules in a nonprofit, and it is harder work, uh, because you got volunteers to manage, but, but it's what mindset shift needs to happen for nonprofit leaders to be able to think in a, in a more assertive way about putting together these networks? Hmm. I think that you're onto something when talking about the scarcity mindset. I think when you come into a, a potential collaboration with a scarcity mindset, it does limit the type of collaboration that you can do. I, I think that's exactly right. Um, the Pieces that I think need to change often is thinking less about positioning my nonprofit and how we can make us, ourselves look good and take credit for XYZ to a mission orientation, meaning that our goal is to make sure that we're increasing well-being in the community and our nonprofit's a vehicle for doing that. And so when we get involved in these networks, Maybe we cannot say, oh, it was my nonprofit who did that thing. And so I should get all the credit. Maybe we have to say we did that thing. And it doesn't really matter who gets the credit because look at what we've done. Look at the ways that we have reduced poverty and increased economic prosperity in this community. Look at the ways we've improved outcomes for seniors. Look at the ways we've closed the education gap. You have to have a kind of a shift towards um, in the, when we're in this network, we're about the mission, right? Doesn't mean the other things don't count. Yes, we are a business. I, I, I agree with you. Not, I always tell my students in classes that we're not for profits. If they don't make any money, they're bankrupt. It's not, not, they're not, it's not that they're not for profit organization. We are in the business of making money. We have to, to make our organization survive and do what we want to. But when you step into the network space, it can't all just be about me and mine. It has to be about ours and the social impact we can make together. Wise words. It's amazing how much you can get done when you don't care who gets the credit. Um, so so um, let's, let's talk about um, some of the, the missteps. People, well-intended people go into uh, networks and they don't define things like <clears throat> the money, the flow of the money. You know, how do we how do we manage the proceeds? 
especially it would occur to me that if if you're combining several organizations in a unified mission with a greater impact that would probably help you qualify for larger grants or donations wouldn't it mm-hmm. yeah i think if we're thinking about missteps right so the the first piece of missteps is probably not thinking through how you're going to make a social impact together that's the most common one i see So I talked to lots of organizations who say, oh, we have a network, we get together once a quarter and we have lunch. And I say, great, what do you do at lunch? (laughs) They say, well, we eat and you know, that's our network. Like, I mean, it's great, you're you're having lunch, it's good to have companionship, but that's not making a social impact. I do not see how your lunch necessarily translates into the social impact you wanna see, right? So I think being really specific about what you mean around that is really important. Second is being clear about the setup. And we've already talked about a little bit about some of those pieces. The money piece is important. And this throws off a lot of organizations. Most networks in order to run require resources for the network, not just for the organizations in the network. This means that there's some overhead that gets added and we don't love overhead. Funders don't love overhead either. There's sometimes are a difficult thing to run, uh, to think through. So assuming that this network isn't gonna need any money, that's, pro- that's a misstep. It's gonna need some money in order to function. But you wanna be careful as you think about where that money's coming from, that you don't compete with your organizational members. So there's many times in which we've encountered networks and the network itself gets its own legal status, right? The network becomes its own entity and the organizations within it become members, right, of it. And then they can compete with one another for funds if you're not careful. So being very clear as if the organization, the network gets more and more formalized and it's no longer just a loose collection of people, but it becomes its own legal entity How are you going to enter into those fundraising circles so that you're not cannibalizing the funds that your member organizations need? That's a big deal because money is a magnifier, good and bad. And, you know, it it becomes an issue if if we don't define those key things you're you're talking about. So the network itself becomes a legal entity. What what kind of entity would it be? It's usually a 501c3. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. So it's it's more of a formal collaboration. It can be, right? So when you're thinking about tapping into grant dollars, right? There's a couple of ways that that happens with networks. Sometimes all the organizations go in together on this joint grant and that can be complicated. So sometimes what happens is instead, they find that finding their own legal status makes the network eligible for those, that grant, which means that they can have some overhead for the network and it can fund the activities of some of the organizations within it. And so it's a strategy for being able to tap into some of those funds. Um, give you an example, um, Westside Infant and Family Network in Los Angeles who we've worked with, that they really are, they enter into families whenever kids keep getting kicked out of preschool. Right, like that's their moment where they know there's something going on. If a kid gets kicked out of preschool, the problem's not the kid, there's something else going on. We've got to figure out what the trauma is. Um, They have a number of agencies uh, who serve families that are a part of their network. They became their own 501c3, right? And this was one of the fears. 
But by becoming their own 501c3, they were able to fund the coordination mechanism for the network. And then that nonprofit provides grants to each of the, its member organizations to be able to do home-based um, home visitation. So that's a, one of the ways that that framework can operate. Wow. So <clears throat> there's a lot, lot of um, things to consider because you're talking about extra overhead, but you've got the functionality of the network itself. So it becomes <clears throat> really critical that each participating organization <clears throat> is able to take some things off of their plate to be able to contribute to the network. Uh, so how do you work through that? That's, that's um, we're talking to, especially today, nonprofit leaders are very anxious, very stressed, a lot of burned out leaving the profession. So when you say you got an extra entity, what keeps people from running the other way? <laughs> I think that my experience is once you get over that initial fear, when people step into the room and they say, okay, I'm going to see if this is going to work for our organization. I'm going to attend a couple of meetings just to kind of find out if this is going to have legs. The first thing that happens is they realize as they look around the room that they're not alone. And for a lot of nonprofit leaders who are running small nonprofit organizations or really strapped nonprofit organizations, just being in that room and realizing we are in this together is a lift, it's a, it's a boon. It helps you feel less burnt out. It helps you feel more connected. I think that's one piece of it. The other thing I would say is that, yes, you might be doing, you might have to give up something in terms of what you're doing to make the time for the network. But that might be okay if the network is going to make a social impact that your organization can't by itself. Okay. Um, so I think about organizations that have come together in terms of education, right? Um, so there's a, a lovely network um, called Voyage in South Carolina, South Carolina, Wilmington, South Carolina, yeah, um, called Voyage. They have been thinking about how do you help transform this little neighborhood about 100 square blocks of, in, in Wilmington. Um, you know, neighborhood of color, low-income neighborhood. How do you do it? And by getting all of these organizations to come together, yes, they have different ways of working together, but they, what they've found is um, they were able to offload some things. The network itself decided that it, its strategy was to create what are called peer navigators. And they, the, net, the network is its own entity, it hires the peer navigators, but it means that you have individuals who can help those who are struggling get to the right agencies and the right services and walk along with them in a goals-based approach. So yes, it did take more time and coordination for those organizations to get involved, but anytime they need somebody to reach out and work with a family that they encounter who needs to find a whole bunch of services they don't provide, they're not doing navigation in-house anymore they can just call the network, right? So it's, it's a different way of shifting some of what you do. You might get to do a little bit less of what you have been doing before by spending some more time coordinating and you might get a bigger outcome because of it. Yeah, we think about the extra work and we forget about the extra impact and maybe getting some of those things off of our plate that we'd like to get off our plate, but we don't know how. So there's a there's a there's a upfront investment of planning 
and making sure that you've got a really solid model and everybody is in. So how do you make sure that everybody that's each nonprofit that's participating, how do you make sure there's buy-in and, and accountability with all the participants? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that some of that it ends up shaking out over time. Um, my experience with this is that you want to have organizations who sign up voluntarily for this commitment that their funder didn't make them. Um, so that's number one. But then it's being very specific about what each organization is going to do and how we're going to hold them accountable for that. And that doesn't mean every organization has to have the same commitment, right? A hospital system and a faith-based nonprofit in a community shouldn't have the same kind of commitment to the network. They're going to offer different things, but being very specific about what they're putting in and what they should expect out of that makes a big difference. And then once organization networks get up to any size, part of that is developing metrics and accountability project management structures around this um, at the network level. There's a conflict model called the role renegotiation model. And sometimes people get into situations with agreements and systems and they force it. They say, we said we're going to do it this way. We got to do it. Wait a minute. It's not working. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so how do you go back to the table and look at the issues and renegotiate how it's supposed to happen? Um, do you speak about that in your book? Yeah, we have a chapter on change and that really there's a, a couple of different places where that happens. One of them is kind of the incremental adjustments that you make as you get better kind of adaptive adjustments where you realize, oh, that's not working. Let's try it this way. And those kind of changes can be expected in any network, right? any organization, really. And, and there's some strategies as a network leader that are slightly different than the ones you would use as an organizational leader. But I think there's also a time in which many networks hit a change where they have to go back and renegotiate everything. It's what we call crossroads moments. Um, and crossroads moments are times in which something has so fundamentally shifted in the network or in the environment that you have to go back almost to the beginning and figure out why are we here again? Um, so think most common of these is whenever you've had a major funder who's been funding your network for a while and they decide they are no longer gonna fund that network. Okay, so all of a sudden 70% of your funding's gone. Do you still exist? What are you gonna do? Are you gonna downscale? Are you gonna dissolve? Are you gonna apply for that? All those questions come up whenever that happens. Um, there's a network that uh, we, we include in the book called Summit Education Initiative in Akron, Ohio. And they created their own crossroads moment. They looked at all of their programs and they were looking at their outcomes. This is an education network um, and they didn't like what they were seeing. So the board um, who was heading up the, the network, it's a network of about 300 organizations, shut down every single program, disbanded all of the, the program staff that they had and started again right? They created their own crossroads moment and renegotiated everything. So there's a lot of different ways that that happens. Some of it's not in your control. Some of it might be, but I think you're right. You have to be willing to go back and renegotiate it if it's not working. And it might be a small renegotiation or it might be a significant one. I think we're always updating and revising if we're paying attention because <clears throat> things change and we learn, we learn things. So I think it's 
that's part of staying on the cutting edge and it's tweaking your, your systems and just kind of making it better, but not throwing out what, what works. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, what's your prevailing piece of advice um, for a network leader? You know, mm-hmm. what would that advice be? I think my best advice is to keep your theory of change front and center. And what your theory of change is, how is all of your network activity that you're doing going to translate into a social impact? Are you doing it through project? Are you doing it through advocacy? Are you doing it through learning? Some networks just make other or figure out how to make all their members better. Are you doing it through systems alignment where you, you get that kind of Uh, The whole is more than the sum of the parts moment that I talked about. Whatever that moment is, keep that front and center and just communicate that, over-communicate that to your members. Or um, my experience is for network leaders, if you don't do that, you end up reinventing the whole network every three years because no one can figure out what you're doing. And networks are new enough that you have to kind of remind people why we're in it and how all this collaboration amounts to anything. So that's my best piece of advice is figure out your theory of change, figure out how your network is going to make a social impact and just keep communicating that to everybody involved. So the, um, the website where people can find out is nnsi.northwestern.edu. What is NNSI? NNSI is the Network for Nonprofit and Social Impact at Northwestern University. It's a research lab that I founded and I run. Um, so we have graduate students and research associates and undergraduate students who all help us conduct some of this research on how to make networks better. And um, if you go there, there's also a link to that slash blog. What are we going to find in the blog? So in the blog, we try to make all of this research um, that we do really accessible. The blog is written for network leaders. Um, So one of my commitments when I founded this is I didn't want my research to just be in rarefied academic journals that only students would read whenever they were made to by their professors, right? I wanted this to be so accessible and so helpful because I think that there are really great evidence-based insights that come out of research that can help nonprofit leaders be so much more effective. And so that's what the blog's all about is how do we translate what the current research is on networks and and make it really accessible so you have some good evidence-based insights. Perfect. And you also have a podcast of your own. What's that like? Um, so I have a podcast mini series. Um, and so we did a mini series around us um, with some of the education networks that I've talked about um, here on the pod, uh, your, your show today. And I wanted to give them a chance beyond the research that we reported to tell their stories because I found them to be such remarkable people that I wanted other folks to hear about them. So that's what the mini series is all about. Lovely, lovely. We're not very good at telling our story. So <clears throat> having an outlet like that is, is helpful. Michelle Shumate, um, you can find her at nnsi.northwestern.edu. Find out about her work. And um, thank you for being our guest today for the Nonprofit Exchange. Thanks so much. It's been fun. Thank you for watching the Nonprofit Exchange. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.